Good morning. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. Just to let you know, we are working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. And as I just said this morning in our study, we have entered into chapter 18. Now, the focus of John chapters 18 and 19 is the day Jesus was crucified. And let me stop and say how incredible it is to me that our studies in God's Word often intersect, I mean, it's amazing, uh, with the events of life in such a dramatic and profound way. Today, of course, is September 11th. To borrow a phrase from FDR, a day that will live in infamy in the minds of us who are Americans because September 11th, 2001 was a day that changed the world. In fact, if you Google the phrase, the day that changed the world, the number one hit is September 11th, 2001, or 9-11 as we have come to refer to it. But here's something we must understand. 9-11 was a day that definitely changed the world in a profound way for the bad. We're still living with the consequences every time you want to fly somewhere, okay? But the day Jesus was crucified changed the world in a profound way for the best, in the best way possible. You know, as a teenager, and I've told you this before, but as a teenager, I can still remember the day that Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. The day was July 21st, 1969. And right after Neil Armstrong stepped on the moon, um, onto the moon, Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, went on TV and said, "This is the greatest day in the history of man, of, in the history of the world. Man has conquered space." Well, the next day, the Reverend Billy Graham came out publicly and refuted that statement by saying, and I'm quoting him. Yesterday was not the greatest day in the history of the world. There have been at least three others that have been greater. The birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And so in our study in the Gospel of John, we have entered into chapter 18, a chapter that starts out with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is spending some time with his Father in prayer before his crucifixion. And as we've already seen, during that time, Judas shows up with over 600 Roman soldiers and temple, temple police, all carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. Look at verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the, of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, as we've already said, this would have been the first of two trials that Jesus endured that morning uh, before being crucified. The first would be a religious trial, and the second, a civil trial. This first trial took place before the, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, the second one before Pilate, the Roman governor of the region. And again, if we combine the accounts from all four Gospels, we learn that each trial had three phases. We've already looked at the religious trial. We saw the three phases where Jesus, first of all, stood, uh, stood before Annas. He next then stood before Caiaphas. And then finally, he stands before the whole Jewish high council. 
Let me read to you from Luke 22, verses 66 to 70. As soon as it was day, or in other words, as soon as the sun had risen, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say, listen, that I am. Don't miss that. You rightly say that I am. That is the name of God. Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Well, Lord, I don't even know your name. Who shall I tell Pharaoh is sending me? You tell him, I am is sending you. The name of God, right? Yahweh. Matthew 26, verses 65 and 6. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. With further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered and said, He is deserving of death. Big surprise. Mark tells us at this point, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And that brings us to the second trial Jesus would endure this morning, uh, the civil trial of Jesus. The first phase, Jesus stands before Pilate the first time. Jesus stands before Pilate the first time. Before we look at that, let me just say, as we read the Gospels, the day that Jesus was crucified started out like any other day. started out like any other day, except this was Passover, the greatest of all the Jewish holidays. And so Jerusalem was waking up with a holiday spirit containing a mixture of excitement and anticipation. Passover, you probably already know this, but Passover was one of the three major Jewish feasts of the year. And so it was and still is a big deal for the Jewish people, uh, often drawing Jews from Jewish pilgrims from all over the known world to celebrate the feast in Jerusalem. Uh, for every Jew, they, they longed to celebrate one Passover in Jerusalem. That is, they lived far away. Now, if you were a Jewish adult male living within 20 miles from Jerusalem, you were required by Jewish law to be at the three main Jewish feasts of the year. Pentecost, uh, uh, Passover in the spring, Pentecost, early summer, and Tabernacles in the fall. But many Jews lived outside of that 20-mile radius of the city, and so they longed to spend one Passover in Jerusalem. And... Um, it was a big deal for them. So Pilate now, um, I would imagine, on his way to work that morning, no doubt with Starbucks in hand, he uh, you know, knew it was Passover time, probably thought with every Jew in town preoccupied with the Passover, I don't know, maybe this is going to be an easy, uneventful day for me. Well, little did he realize nothing could have been further from the truth. Shortly after Pilate opened his courtroom, to start his day, uh, there came a group of Jewish leaders with a prisoner in tow. The prisoner, uh, Pilate recognized immediately as Jesus, 
who claimed to be a prophet from the town of Nazareth. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Now, please don't let that last statement throw you in that 12 hours earlier, roughly, Jesus and his disciples had, all, disciples had already celebrated the Passover, right? It was at the Passover that he first instituted communion. So what's going on here when it says that the Jewish religious leaders that brought Jesus to Pilate that morning didn't want to go into the Praetorian? That would be Pilate's judgment hall or courtroom. That was Gentile territory. Lest they be defiled and not be able to eat the Passover meal. Again, as we've already studied and we looked at John 13, Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover meal in the upper room, roughly 12 or so hours earlier. So how could Jesus observe the Passover the night before and still be crucified on Passover the next day, even as Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7? Part of the mystery is solved by understanding that the Jewish people were on a lunar calendar and not a solar calendar. In other words, the Jewish day began at sunset and ended at sunset. Therefore, they could eat the Passover meal after sundown on the 13th of Nisan, the Jewish month of Nisan, which would then be the beginning of a new day, the 14th day of the month of Nisan, the day God mandated in the law of Moses, in Leviticus 23, verse 5, that the Passover was to be celebrated on. And then the whole next day, until sundown, um, was still the 14th of, I think it's pronounced Nisan, Nisan um, the day Jesus was crucified. So he could eat the Passover the previous evening, because that's when the day started. And then, of course, as the sun came up, it was still Passover, the day he was eventually uh, crucified on but also guys you need to understand that two of the seven feasts of Moses these are outlined in uh, Leviticus 23 that two of the seven feasts of Moses were celebrated back to back back to back Passover was celebrated on the 14th of Nisan as I just said and the feast of unlivered bread started on the 15th and ran for seven consecutive days because of it these two feasts were often lumped together and spoken of by the Jewish people as if they were a single feast. Let me give you an example. Sometimes when the Jewish people in Jesus' day spoke of the Passover, you read this in the Gospels, they often meant only the day, the 14th of Nisan, only the day. But sometimes, and you got to look at the context, sometimes they were talking about both the Feast of Passover and the Feast of of unleavened bread, lumping them together and referring to all of it as the Passover. In other words, Passover season is the idea, or the time of Passover. We do it with Christmas. We know Christmas is a day, December 25th, but we talk about the Christmas season, right? And so sometimes that's what they did with their most famous, uh, beloved holiday, Passover. Um, but also in the Gospels, 
And again, you got to look at the context. Um, sometimes they would talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread as referring to the entire eight-day feast period, which would include Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They would lump it together, as was the case here in John 18, verse 28. Let me read it again. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the Praetorium, lest they should be defiled, that, but that they might eat the Passover. What they're talking about technically is the first meal of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which they've lumped together, calling the whole thing the Passover. All right? One commentator gives us some background into this. He said, and I quote, Jewish oral law gives evidence that a Jew who entered the dwelling places of Gentiles became ceremonially unclean. Their remaining, their remaining outside in the, in the colonnade avoided that pollution. John loads this statement with great irony by noting that the chief priest scrupulously in the matter of ceremonial cleanliness, when all they were very scrupulous in the area of ceremonial cleanliness, when all the, uh, all the time they were incurring incomparably greater moral defilement by their proceedings against Jesus. Here they are about to kill the Son of God, yet they're worrying about defiling themselves by stepping on Gentile territory, end quote. Typical of religious people. Straining gnats, swallowing camels, right? Now, guys, the Praetorium was where Pilate's headquarters was located when he was in Jerusalem. Where it was, uh, historians are not quite sure, it was either, uh, probably either uh, in the fortress of Antonia, which sat on the Temple Mount itself, or it could have been in Herod's palace, which uh, was located back then on the north, uh, northwestern wall of the upper city of Jerusalem. They were both close to each other. But this is where Pilate stayed when he was in Jerusalem. His official headquarters, his permanent residence, was in Caesarea, which was about 53 and a half miles to the south on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. I've been there. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous place to live. Get that nice uh, ocean breeze or sea breeze because, you know, no air conditioning. It's nice to live in an area where you got a nice cool breeze all summer coming off the Mediterranean Sea. But he had to go to, to um, Jerusalem from time to time. He was the governor of the entire region, and Judea was a big deal. It was a big part of that region. So he had to go there uh, from time to time. And uh, one of the responsibilities he had was, would be to hold court. Uh, in many ways, these guys were like the old traveling uh, judges in, in the, uh, the early days of our country, where you have people that would go around, official judges, and they would hold court in different areas because people didn't have a permanent judge that lived there. And so Pilate would, so these Jewish leaders wanted to get to Pilate's court early that morning. His court opened at sunrise, and so they came just after sunrise, we've already read in Luke's gospel, because they wanted to make sure that theirs was the first case he adjudicated that morning. And that was partly due to the fact that they wanted Jesus executed as soon as possible so they could get on with their holiday celebrations. But also because Pilate's court closed for the day by late, after, by late morning, somewhere around 10, 30, 11 o'clock. They got there too late, they might have to wait in line, and they may not have their case heard. 
Let's just get there as early as we can. That way he'll have to listen to our case before his court closed for the day. Verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? Now at this point, guys, Pilate didn't realize that Jesus had already been put through a religious trial at the house of Caiaphas. He was the high priest that year where the leaders of Israel had met and determined that Jesus was a blasphemer worthy of death. The problem was they didn't have the authority to carry out that death sentence. For that, they would need Pilate. You see, according to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, the right of capital punishment had been taken away from the nation of Israel by the Romans in 6 AD. That was the year that Judea became a Roman province. 6 AD. When that happened, the rabbis tore their clothes, put ashes on their heads, and walked through the streets of Jerusalem weeping and wailing. Why? Well, it goes back to a prophecy that Jacob made on his deathbed as recorded in Genesis 49, verse 10. You have to turn to it. I'll read it to you. If you want to, fine. This would be a messianic prophecy. They knew that. And if you were a Jew, a very important messianic prophecy. And so Jacob, on his deathbed, he prophesied over each of his 12 sons. He comes to Judah, the fourth son. And it says in verse 10, Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word Shiloh, again, is a messianic term and means until he comes to whom it belongs. Until he comes to whom it belongs. It refers ultimately to the Jewish Messiah's right to reign over the entire earth during the millennial kingdom, a right that was established by Jesus at his first coming when he redeemed the world back from the hands of Satan on Calvary's cross. You have to understand, when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he not, didn't just redeem mankind. He redeemed all of creation and the world especially that Satan had made himself the God of. The scepter, of course, is a reference to the scepter of a king. In this context, the scepter belonging to Messiah as king of the earth when he finally came and established his kingdom. But also, guys, and this is important, don't miss this, the scepter was the symbol of a sovereign nation, a sovereign nation and its right to impose capital punishment on those whose crimes warranted it, which is uh, the right of any sovereign nation to do. The Jewish leaders interpreted Jacob's prophecy to mean that the nation of Israel and its, sovereign, uh, and its sovereign right of capital punishment would not be taken from them until Messiah had come. And that when he did finally come, at that time the nation would become part of the global kingdom of Messiah where he would impose capital punishment upon lawbreakers. He would reign from Jerusalem over the whole earth as king. That's what they were waiting for. 
They interpreted that prophecy to mean you, God is going to keep his people. Israel, the nation he established. They will not have the right of capital punishment taken away from them, the right of any sovereign nation until Messiah comes. Then when he came, he's going to create a world government, will be a part of it, but he will be the ultimate judge. He will take over that responsibility and judge those who are worthy of capital punishment. But now, Rome had removed the right of capital punishment from the nation of Israel. You see, the scepter had departed from Judah, and Shiloh, the Messiah, had not yet come. And that is why they put on sackcloth and ashes. That is why they tore their clothes and walked through the streets of Jerusalem, weeping and wailing. Why? Because in their minds, the word of God had failed. Can you imagine? In their minds, they believed that the word of God had failed. You can see why they were devastated. But listen to me, dear saints of God and lovers of his word. God's word has never nor will ever fail because it is, in fact, the word of the living God, right? Even as Peter proclaimed in 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 5, all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away but the word of the Lord endures forever. You see, guys, what they didn't know as they were weeping and wailing that God's word had failed was that 85 miles to the north in the town of Nazareth, there lived a small boy with his mom and stepfather. The boy we know is Jesus. The word of God had not failed. The scepter had not departed from Judah until Shiloh came. Take that to heart. I don't know what's coming. I know who's coming. But before he comes, I don't know what is coming in the way of hardships. I know the devil will try to get you to use those hardships to doubt God's word, the veracity of God's word. If he can get you to, to doubt the veracity of God's word, he can get you to doubt God himself. That's the, that's the goal of the devil. We must now more than ever before cling to God's word and know it in our heart that it is the word of the living God and as such it has never failed, it will never fail. It endures forever. So you can take God's promises as we would say to the bank. Everything's to the bank with us. I don't know. But getting back to the narrative, a lot of history we're just trying to sketch out. Next week especially, we'll start making some, I think, pretty important applications. But bear with me as we kind of lay the historical framework of this whole day, most important day, well, this and three days, most important, death, birth, death, and resurrection, right, of Jesus Christ. But getting back to the narrative, the Jewish leaders who wanted Pilate to have Jesus executed knew that the charge they had found him guilty of and therefore worthy of death was blasphemy. But they knew that was never going to fly in a Roman court of law. You see, these Jewish leaders 
knew that Pilate would never convict Jesus of a capital crime based on religious grounds, based on matters of Jewish law. So they manufactured three political charges against Jesus that they knew the Roman government would take seriously, very seriously. First of all, that he was a revolutionary who posed a threat to the empire. Number two, that he urged people not to pay taxes, therefore undermining the prosperity of the empire. And number three, that he claimed to be a king, therefore threatening the power and position of the emperor himself. Pilate chose to focus on that third charge, that Jesus claimed to be a king because it was the most serious of the, serious of the three charges leveled against Jesus. And anyone who has studied the civil trial of Jesus knows it was a joke almost as much uh, almost as big a joke as the religious trial had been which had taken place at Caiaphas's house just a short while earlier we've studied that in detail but in that trial practically every Jewish law regarding the legal way to conduct a trial had been violated the trial wasn't to be conducted at night. The witnesses had to agree. The defendant couldn't testify against himself. The entire Sanhedrin was to be present. And on and on it went. They broke every law. The trial at Caiaphas's house was illegal in every way. A total kangaroo court. At least Pilate. Say what you will about him. And I, he wasn't a good guy. We'll see that more next week. But at least Pilate knew Jesus was being railroaded and tried to let him go free, even pronouncing him innocent at one point. Verse 38, I find no fault in him at all. Not that I, he's a little guilty, maybe a little fault. No, he's absolutely innocent. But by this time, the Jewish leadership, in their lust for Jesus' blood, well, they would have no talk of Jesus' innocence or entertain in the slightest degree Pilate's will to set Jesus free. I mean, by this time, they were like sharks that smelled blood in the water. There was absolutely no reasoning with them on this matter. And so verse 28, once again, then they led Jesus to, from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them. You have to understand the scene. Pilate is inside his judgment hall called the Praetorium. He's got to walk outside. That must have irked him. Because, this, you know, judges aren't the most patient people in the world, oftentimes. And I understand why. You see what they have to go through on a daily basis? I'd get a little irritated, too. People always trying to game the system and lie to you through their teeth and so on, Right? Uh, but at least they had to stand before you. Pilate has to go out to them every time he wants to engage them in any kind of conversation, right? And so Jesus was going back and forth in a sense. And um, so Pilate went out to these Jewish leaders and said, What accusation do you bring me against this man? Then they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would have not delivered him up to you. There's no love lost between these two groups, Pilate and the Jewish leaders. You can hear the sneering contempt in their voices for one another. Well, what's the accusation? Hey, you don't need to worry about that. We found him guilty. Just go ahead and do what we want you to do. Oh, really? You know how that goes, right? 
You try to push somebody uh, sarcastically to do something, what do they do? They dig their heels in. They dig their heels in. One author gives some background into this, into this scene. He said, and I quote, Pilate's question, what accusation do you bring against this man, formally opened the legal proceedings. The Jewish leaders had undoubtedly already communicated with him about this case since Roman troops took part in Jesus' arrest. They evidently expected him to rubber stamp their, ju their judgment and sentence Jesus to death. Instead, exercising his prerogative as governor, he ordered, the, he ordered a fresh hearing over which he would preside. But the last thing the Jewish leaders wanted was a trial, which they could uh, potentially lose. They wanted a death sentence. They didn't want, they wanted Pilate to act as, to act as an executioner, not as a judge. They knew that their charge against Jesus, that he was guilty of blasphemy, um, because he claimed to be God incarnate, would not stand up in a Roman court, end quote. So basically, they didn't want Pilate to retry the case. They just wanted Pilate to rubber stamp their verdict. Verse 31. Then Pilate, who was irritated now, I mean, he was probably taken a little back by their um, total lack of respect for him. So he comes back at them. Verse 31, you take him and you judge him according to your law. Pilate knew they couldn't do that. That was sarcasm. Therefore, the Jews said to him, <laughs> he was forcing them to acknowledge his authority. They didn't honor him a minute ago. So they said, well, you want to put the debt? You go ahead and take him and kill him. Forcing them to say, well, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, you need me then. Then how about you show me a little respect? Verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Interesting statement that John puts here. Jesus had predicted his own death on numerous occasions. I'll give you one example. Mark 10, verses 33 and 4. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. Uh, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Now, he had predict predicted his death numerous times. But not only did he predict that he was going to die at the hands of sinful people, but he also predicted the manner in which he would be put to death. And that would be through crucifixion. I'll give you one example of this. John 12, verses 32 and 3. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. John says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. Guys, listen. If Rome had not taken away Israel's right to impose capital punishment, they would have executed Jesus how? By what? Stoning. That was the Jewish method of, of executing criminals. But that would have violated the, prediction of the predictions of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the manner in which he was to be executed. But also, it would have rendered the prophecies of the Old Testament, and I'm thinking primarily of Psalm 22, which gives us a more graphic look at the crucifixion of Christ than does the Gospels. Interesting. But if Rome had not taken away Israel's right of capital punishment, 
they would have stoned Jesus, of course. And that would have violated what God had rendered false, what God had said, the, how God had said the Messiah would be executed, which would be by crucifixion. And Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years before the Romans even invented crucifixion. The, I, I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. The Iranians, Persia, Persians, uh, invented crucifixion because they worshiped the earth. And so you didn't want to let, the, let somebody die on the earth. That was a defilement of the God, the earth God. Let's raise the person up so they die lifted up from the earth. Of course, the Romans took that and perfected it as a real form of torture. They didn't want to just kill somebody. They wanted to make it so brutal that people, kind of like the Assyrians before them, make it so brutal that it would strike terror into any who would have tried to rebel against the Roman government. Now, guys, when Pilate had initially asked the Jewish leaders, what accusation do you bring against this man? Verse 29, Luke gives us some more insight into what happened next. Luke chapter 23, you might want to turn there. Luke 23, verse, verses 2 and 3. So what accusation do you bring against this man? And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, Messiah, a king. Then, verse 33 of John 18, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Again, of the three charges the Jewish leaders brought against Jesus, Pilate chose to focus on the third one, that Jesus claimed to be the king of of the Jews. Guys, Rome would have definitely taken this accusation the most seriously because the land of Israel and the Jewish people that live within it had been subjugated by Rome. In other words, they had been brought under the dominion and control of the Roman government as subjects of the Roman Empire. Therefore, if Jesus was declaring himself the king of the Jews, a population under the control of the emperor, well, he would have been an insurrectionist and guilty of treason against the Roman government. So you can see why Pilate zeroed in on this charge above the others. It was definitely the most serious of the three. So serious, in fact, that in all four Gospels, this is the first question Pilate asked Jesus. And all four times, the word you in the Greek is emphatic. The sentence literally reads this way. You, you are the king of the Jews? He can't believe it. I don't know if there's just total unbelief or some mocking sarcasm or a little of both. You? What's the charge? He claims to be king of the Jews. Goes back in. You? You claim to be the king of the Jews? One author says in the Greek text, Pilate was incredulous. From a human standpoint, Jesus didn't look like a king. And if he was a king, where were his followers and his army? And how was he a threat to Rome in this condition with no army and no followers? Pilate's question, guys, are you the king of the Jews, was in effect, Pilate in effect asking Jesus if he was pleading guilty or innocent to the charges of insurrection. Remember now, this is a court proceeding. Look at verse 34. 
Jesus answered him. Now, guys, do not miss this. Jesus answered him. Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? In other words, Jesus asked Pilate, Are you asking me this question in a political sense or in a personal sense? As my judge or as, a, or as my potential subject? Wow. Wow. If Pilate was asking the question in a political sense, you know, as a judge listening to accusations of others that Jesus proclaimed to be the king of the Jews and therefore was a threat to Rome, if that was the question Pilate was asking as a political question, of course, Jesus' answer in that case would be no. As he clearly said in verse 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. He was not a king in the classic sense, in the sense of a military or political leader. Remember earlier in John 6, verse 15, the people tried to make him a king, an outward political king by force, because he had a way of multiplying small amounts of food and feeding thousands of people. It's handy to have as a <laughs> beginnings of a welfare state back then. Okay, we, hey, we like this. This idea that this, our king is going to be able to feed us whatever we want. Uh, big feast from small scraps of food, right? But he was not a king in that sense. As a military or political leader, the crowd wanted to make him a king, an open outward king, but he refused that. But if Pilate was asking Jesus this question in a personal sense, and I really see that here. I could be wrong. In other words, are you asking me this question because you believe I'm Messiah? Don't forget now, Pilate had known about Jesus for many years. Pilate knew who he claimed to be. We're going to see next week when the trial shifts to Herod, Herod knew full well who Jesus was and was hoping to see him do a miracle to entertain him. Pilate knew. He may not have known everything there was to know about Jesus and all he claimed but he knew enough that Jesus was claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. And so I think he, Jesus was turning the question around. Who's the judge here, ultimately? Pilate or Jesus, right? But he, I think he's saying to Pilate, are you asking me this question because you believe that I am the Messiah, King of the Jews, and you want me to be your king as well? If that's what you're asking, Pilate, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Yes in the sense that Jesus at his first coming would be king of an inner kingdom. An inner kingdom. The kingdom of the human heart. At his second coming, of course, he will come to be an outward king. King of the whole world, outwardly. Pilate, what are you asking me? Are you asking me a question based on the politics of the moment? What people have told you against me? Or... Is there a personal element to this question? You know who I claim to be. Are you saying to me that you believe I might be the Messiah? And maybe you want to become one of my subjects? Make me king in your life? Well, Pilate bristled at that. Verse 35, am I a Jew? He said, 
shot back to the Lord. What, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Wow. And so it's obvious from Pilate's irritated comeback that he was only interested in Jesus in the political sense and not in any personal way. Too bad for Pilate. By the way, his life didn't end too well. We'll see that next time. One pastor commented, he said, and I quote, Pilate's sharp retort, the Greek, I guess, is, I am not a Jew, am I? Reflects both his disdain for the Jewish people and his growing exasperation with the frustrating, puzzling ethnic case set before him. He didn't understand these people at all. He didn't want to understand them. Their very presence was a source of aggravation to him. Uh, we'll see why more next time. But uh, his further elaboration, your own nation and the chief priests, your chief priests delivered you to me, makes it clear that the governor was merely repeating the charge leveled against Jesus by the Jewish leaders. The accusation was theirs, not Rome's. Exactly why they had done so still eluded Pilate. Uh, he knew perfectly well that the Jews would not have handed over to him someone hostile to Rome unless they stood to gain from doing so. Attempting once again to get to the bottom of things, Pilate asked the question that he should have asked at the outset. What have you done? Pilate understood that the Jewish leaders had handed Jesus over to them because of envy. Matthew 27 verse 18 tells us that. What he still did not understand was what Jesus had done to provoke such vehement hostility from them and what, if any, crime he had committed, end quote. Now, we're done. Let me just read the next few verses, and we won't even get into them, right? But verses 36 to 38, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate uh, therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, and here I will impose what I believe was the way he said it, what is truth? And the Gospels tell us at that point he turned around and walked away. It was not a sincere question. If he had really wanted to know that question, the answer to that question, he would have said, can you tell me what is truth? And waited for his response. Why he said this the way he did and walked away, I'll tell you next week. But let me just say this in closing. Hold on to these verses because I'd like to unpack them next time as we continue our study in the civil trial of Jesus. And in particular, using Pilate's sar sarcastic retort to Jesus, what is truth? To launch us into a study on what truth is and why it is so important to life. Think about this. If somebody came up to you today and said, what is truth? Well, that's Jesus. No, no, no. Define truth. Well, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth. Sure. Absolutely right. But for the 
the, the secular person, how would you define truth? Sometimes we throw concepts around, even words, and we really do in our heart know basically what the, it's trying to articulate to somebody else. That's how you know if you really know it or not, right? There are words that, okay, what, what is God's glory? Well, we've already talked about that, so don't cheat. But, you know, we talk about the glory of God. What if somebody came up and you said, what, what is the glory of God? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, what do you think about that? Uh, you know, there are concepts in the Bible that we throw around routinely that we couldn't really define if we had to. Truth, I think, is one of the greatest of all concepts stated in the Bible. It's not only important that we understand it and are able to define it properly, you can't live your life without truth. The devil knows that, and so what is he doing to our country? He is flooding our country with lies. Most people, I, I relate to Pilate, at least as an American. You got everybody and their brother telling us what truth is. Is it any wonder that we'd be prone to say, like Pilate, what is truth? If you're an unbeliever. Next week, we will look at that concept. I'm not going to get into a whole big series. Just, but lay it out. Because Pilate brought it up. I think we ought to understand it before we move on. So, Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. A lot of history, a lot of background, but necessary as we then begin to build on these, this foundation, the events that happened that morning 2,000 years ago, that very important morning that changed the world for the best. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.